Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. There comes a time for nearly every early stage startup where they're faced with a tough choice. Continue bootstrapping on one hand, or on the other, secure the funding necessary to build the runway your product needs. The catch is that no one outside your network yet knows what problem your product is solving or believes in your approach to it. That's, of course, why they call those VCs writing the early checks, angel investors. And to get better insight into how angels think and what they're looking for, this week our co-founder, Des Trainer sits down with one of the most successful angels in Silicon Valley, Jason Calacanis. Jason's a serial entrepreneur, host of his own wildly popular podcast, This Week in Startups, founder of the Launch Incubator and Festival, and most notably, a hyperactive angel investor. He's typically investing in two to three companies a month, and was one of the very first in the door at Uber, Thumbtack, and Wealthfront, among many others. Most recently, Jason's made the jump to published author. His new book is titled Angel, How to Invest in Technology Startups, and features timeless advice from the man who turned $100,000 into $100 million. It's available July 18th via HarperCollins, and for Inside Intercom listeners, we're actually giving away 100 copies of Jason's book for free. Simply contact us through the messenger at blog.intercom.com, share why Jason's advice resonates with you, and you'll be entered to win. In his chat with Des, Jason shares what he looks for in promising founders, when founders should begin pitching angel investors to begin with, how to approach valuation, and much more. I'll let Des take it from here. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to Inside Intercom. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by a seasoned entrepreneur, a world-renowned angel investor, a famous podcast host, and the founder of a very popular incubator that I've spoken at several times, except for it's not four people, it's actually just one. Jason Calacanis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Des. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jason, you've recently written a book called Angel, which is all about angel investing. Uh, we'll talk more about the book in a little bit. But to get us started, what attracted you to the world of angel investing? I know you obviously made some money off weblogs. Was it just people asking you for money as their rich friend or had you always an eye to get into investing? My original position on investing was I only invested myself. And by doing that, I missed investing in Twitter and Zynga which were two, which was like a $50 million and a $25 million mistake. So after a while of this position, this really stupid position that I was only going to invest in myself, I realized I have so many smart friends who are doing so many big, ambitious projects. Even Tesla, you know, passed on investing in that. And I'm good friends with Elon. So all my friends were starting these great companies. And I made $50 million, $25 million mistake after mistake after mistake. And then I realized, hey, I'm a real schmuck. I need to like, when my friends tell me they have an idea, I need to invest in it. So when Travis came to me and said, hey, can I get your advice on my new startup? The first thing I said to him was, can I invest? He said, do you want to know the idea? I said, no, I just want to invest in you. Then tell me the idea. And he showed me Uber with one or two cars on the map. That's incredible. You've obviously had a lot of hits along the way, but angel investments, obviously they don't all work out. That's the kind of the point, right? You've had like Uber, Tomtak, Wealthfront. Why do you keep your chips on the table? It's a good question. I love angel investing because you essentially have this proposition if you're doing it in Silicon Valley where you're investing in people who have a high likelihood of having success at some point in their life. So if you miss it on this investment with, let's say, Travis on Scour, his first company, and you miss it on – and Red Swoosh is a single or double, then you go invest in his third company and it's a hit, right? A, a mega hit. So I think that 
the odds are so in your favor if you're networked in Silicon Valley that it's crazy not to angel invest in 30, 40, 50 companies. And the reason I wrote the book was I just thought I've learned so much about this after 125 investments and six of them have become unicorns. Uh, I just literally, since I wrote the book, found out I have three more unicorns in my portfolio. <laughs> so now my average is one in 21. So every 21 investments I've hit a unicorn. If I only hit one unicorn in 125 investments, it would have been in all likelihood a very profitable endeavor for me. So uh, I think that the odds are massively in your favor here and I love doing it because as an angel investor, you get to talk to somebody who wants to change the world and you get to be part of that. And it's super thrilling, exciting, educational and fun. It's literally the greatest job on the planet because, as you know, running a company, you lay in bed and you stare at the ceiling worrying about customers leaving and customer engagement and losing your CTO and losing your head of sales. And mm -hmm. when are we going to run out of money? And you know, all these kind of issues. But when you're angel investing, you have a portfolio strategy. And when six or seven or eight out of 10 companies fail, most people get super depressed. But once you understand that that's a sign that the remaining two or three that have not died yet out of 10 are going to go on to great success, you become very peaceful about the failures. But it takes a year or two to get through that. In fact, in the book, I talk about year two and how terrible it is as an angel investor because right. you start having all your first year companies fail while you're investing in your next year's company. Let's say you invest in 10 a year. So if you can get through your sophomore year, when you become a junior and a senior, you can see the light at the tunnel. But I think freshman year is exciting. Sophomore and junior year can be terrifying. And then senior year and when you go on to you know, your fifth and sixth year, that's when it gets accelerating. How do you like, think about deal flow in that regard? Because obviously, like, you know, your network is growing all the time. So in theory, your odds are probably getting better as you get more and more connected as well, right? I mean, is it fair to say then that like your early years might be barren for a lot of reasons? Or is it possible that you could start and be a winner on day one? You could hit a winner, of course. There's a lot of randomness here. But what I advise people is in year one, make one to $2,000 investments via syndicates, AngelList, SeedInvest, Republic, Funders Club, et cetera, so that you're investing very low dollar amounts while you're learning. So right. I use the analogy of learning to play poker. If you wanted to go play poker, you should play at the $1, $2 table where the bet sizes are $1 and $2 and where you have to buy in for $20 or $40 or $50. This way you can buy in five times, lose $200 and not care. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the bigger tables, you may have to buy in for $500 or $1,000 every time. And then if you lose $2,500 or $5,000 learning to play poker, you might feel really stupid and you'll be a fish, right? And the, and the right. sharks will be eating you up. What you want to do is if you know you're a fish, if you know you're new, bet the smallest bet size possible while learning. And so I think the best way to do this is start slow, put that $1,000 or $2,000 into deals that have been pre-vetted by other angels, but act as if you put $100,000 in. In other words, be as helpful to the startups as if you put in fifty or $100,000. Right. And basically fake it till you make it. Act like you're a baller angel investor putting in $100K even though you only put in 1000 so you can learn and build your reputation. Then in year two, as you said, your signaling gets better. Your network gets better. Your reputation gets better. All of those things then draw better startups to you. And so, you know, in year six or seven now of me angel investing, I have, you know, every great deal in the Valley I'm probably going to have exposure to. I probably have as close to 
you know, complete access to deals as anyone because of my reputation for providing a lot of value. So it's very rare that I get blocked from a deal. It's usually I'm too busy to respond to all the inbound. But in your first two years, you're going to be building deal flow, like you say. So just take your time and learn. And the reason I wrote the book is I really want people to learn how to do this better than I did it. So I put every secret I know in the book because it's not a zero-sum game. As you know, every startup that's raising angel investing, they usually have – from angel investors, they usually have 20, 30, 40 investors before they get to the VC round. I'm not sure how it went down with Intercom, but I'm guessing there were 20 investors before the first VC. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. Certainly more than 10. (laughs) So there was an opportunity, and it's not zero-sum game in in the early days. Later on, you know, something like Intercom, it's going to be competitive for the Series B, the Series C, and one VC might try to block every other VC. You get sharp elbowed, mm-hmm. and it is zero sum. One person gets the deal, and the other people don't. So, you know, for me, I'm just trying to increase the number of people angel investing to increase my own deal flow. The more people I inspire and help do this, the more they're going to send me the next Uber, Thumbtack, Robinhood, Desktop Metal, Data Stacks, you know, et cetera. Do you have any sort of thesis around like return profile or when you'll see your money back or or like investment hypothesis? Or is the whole beauty of it that it's just not that complex and you can just do things to feel good? So I think as an angel investor, the likely scenario is you lose half your money or you double your money. That's probably what happens to most people. They either you know, get unlucky, they invest in 30 companies and they lose half their money. If they were investing $5,000 per company or $10,000 per company and they invest in 30, you know, their 300,000 could become 150 or the 150 could be 75,000. And in which case they will have learned a lot and built their network for less than the cost of a master's degree. There is an another chance that you'll double your money, you'll feel great about yourself. And then there's this outside chance of outside returns. If you hit a unicorn, and your average investment size, let's say, is $5 million, that's a 200x return if it hits a billion dollars. If you were diluted by half, it would still be a 100x return. That means you invested in 30 and you got 100 units back. So you're going to be way in the money. And so I think on average, if you do it in the valley, chance you could lose half your money. Some investments have to return something. I mean, it is possible theoretically to invest in 30 or 40 Silicon Valley companies and miss everything. But even the people who've gone super crazy investing in tons of companies like 500 startups, Dave McClure's incubator, I think it's invested in close to 1,500 or 2,000 companies now, he hit only one or two unicorns. I mean he, his hit rate is one every 750 and he still – he says he has a profitable portfolio. And so you know, if you, he hit a Twilio, which I, I'm assuming is a 500x or a 250x. So I think you, you don't need to hit – Every you don't have to have a one in twenty one ratio like I happen to have lucked into, but you know the the return profile is the first three or four years are miserable and you only get bad news. The companies, the experiments, you know that didn't work will quickly you'll find out between months twelve and thirty six <laughs> that they've run out of money. It didn't work. They're shutting down, and when they shut down, you usually get no money back, half your money back, one extra money back if it's an aqua hire, and then. The companies that survive, if you're in year four, five, six, and seven, either you found enough money to break even or you're off to the races and your revenue is scaling to you know seven, eight, even nine figures. And so you'll find out about your winners in year seven, eight, nine, and 10. And I'm in my year seven now and I'm starting to have all these winners pile up from the first four years. Right. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe let's talk about how you look at founders when they come to you. Uh, in the book, you talk about the importance of not going for billion-dollar ideas, but instead you say look for billion-dollar founders. What do you mean by that, and how, how can you identify them? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I look at companies, if you try to understand if people will be willing to rent out their extra bedroom in their apartment or their extra couch in their living room, and let a stranger rent it. This is a crazy idea. This is mm-hmm. a crazy idea, which was one of the top five bets you could have made in the last 10 years, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. I would never stay in an Airbnb. I found the concept insane, but I'm 46 years old and I've stayed at hotels my whole life and I am risk averse. I think I don't want to meet new people. I don't want somebody having my phone number. I don't want somebody making me breakfast. That's I'm not that adventurous now. I, I want to get in and out of a hotel. I'm busy. I'm not interested in making a new friend and having a new experience. i got too many friends, right? right? I'm not the market for Airbnb. And if you try to understand these ideas and you look away from, hey, the, what happens if it does work? You're going to miss all the big opportunities. So I didn't think Twitter would be – I thought Twitter, if it succeeded, would just be a cacophony of idiots talking to each other about inane stuff. And you know what? I might have been right in some <laughs> ways. You called it. But the fact is I, I – didn't realize that as a blogger, somebody who liked to write a thousand words, Twitter was not for me. Twitter was for everybody else who didn't have the ability to write a thousand words or didn't want to. It was for people who wanted to write a sentence. And so when you try to understand these big groundbreaking ideas, if they are in fact groundbreaking, nobody would ever rationally think they would work to bet on somebody like Elon Musk to make an electric car or SpaceX or his new company, The Boring Company, those are illogical bets to make. The chances of success are one, two, three percent. But the payoff is a thousand to one. So once you can get into your head that you don't have to know if it's gonna the idea is gonna work. You just need to know if the person is passionate, the person is capable, and the person is not gonna quit. And if you look at someone like Travis from Uber or Elon from SpaceX and Tesla, you know, you know that they're, or Zuckerberg from Facebook or yourself from Intercom, like I can meet a person and know they're not going to quit. This person is going to work through the hard times. Now that doesn't mean they're going to succeed, but it does mean if they have that resiliency and the idea matters to them and they're passionate about it and they have some craftsmanship in their work, some pride, you know, some attention to detail, that's the prototype of somebody who will do great work, hard work, through the hard times and not give up. Most startups fail, not because they run out of money. The reason most startups fail is the founder quits. I've seen founders who run out of money tell their team, hey, I'm not gonna pay you for the next two to four weeks, but I'm gonna get a bridge loan, and if you stick with us, I'll make sure you get paid back over the next six months, and if any of you need to pay a mortgage payment, I'll put it on my credit card or something, uh, and I'll give you a loan, but I really, I, I wanna try to keep the startup alive, and they're honest with their team, but. I've seen this happen and and they survive. In fact, Tesla was one of those companies. Elon went into debt to save that company personally. So I think you're looking for those kind of indefatigable, rabid, hardworking founders. And you can f- figure that out by having open-ended conversations with them where you ask questions like, what are you working on? Why are you doing this idea? Why will this idea work now? And then just listening to their answers, like just really focusing in on those answers and looking for ideas that the person who's pursuing them is are passionate about. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. What I'm curious about is when should somebody reach out? Like as an angel, when should you be willing to look at a company and even you yourself personally, like on a spectrum of like, hey, I've got a half-baked idea in a Google Doc all the way through to, hey, I've got this product built and it's generating revenue. Like when do you want to talk? And I guess maybe this is slightly related to valuations as well. So I'd love to know how do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, depending on where you're at in your angel investing career, you can choose to focus pre-product market fit or post-product market fit. If something has product market fit and a bunch of traction, they're going to trigger a Series A investment. A Series A investment these days is in the, let's call it 12 to $30 million range, what used to be a Series B, in fact. So if something has fifty to $150,000 in monthly revenue or let's call it 5 million monthly users, there's a good possibility they're going to trigger a Series A. In other words, they don't need angel money anymore. So if you look for things just to the left of that, just before that, maybe somebody has 10K a month in reoccurring revenue if they're enterprise or even 20K or 5K or 50K. If somebody has a million users a month, 10,000 a day, 20,000 a day, they probably are not going to trigger a Series A and they'll be what I call a Goldilocks startup, which mm-hmm. is not too cold, not too hot. If you go into the not too cold area as an angel investor, especially a new one, you're going to be betting on people's charisma and their enthusiasm. And listen, founders are highly charismatic, but you're going to be investing probably too early. In today's market, it only takes a month or two for somebody to build a prototype to build a hardware prototype takes maybe 10 weeks. To build an app prototype might take six weeks. To build a website might take four weeks. People can build a prototype in a couple of months off sweat equity. And there are so many of these people building MVPs, minimum viable products, that you don't need to go to the idea stage as a new angel. You can wait for people to have a product that you can play with, that they can walk you through, and that maybe has five customers or 10 customers. That's where I advise people to focus their attention. And if they meet somebody with an idea, it's fine to go to a meeting. You can say, great, I invest when the product's been in the market for 60 days and you have some modest traction. And what that'll do is it'll eliminate the 90% death rate 
of companies that are pre-launch. Pre-launch, 90% of those companies fail. Post-launching the product and having a modest amount of traction, maybe half of them fail from that point forward. In other words, those are 10% of the startup pool already. So you've literally gotten yourself through that first hurdle. So I always tell people who are starting, just look for people who already have their team, already have a little bit of funding because now we see probably three, four, five investment rounds before Series A. Three, four, or five investment rounds are probably what the average startup raises. So that means you have three, four, five times to get into a startup before yeah. they get their Series A. And that's what you're looking to do. So I say wait, get some traction, look for them in the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. So like following from that, like a common criticism you hear from founders is like, oh, VCs or angel investors, they never say no. What they say is like, not yet, or a little early yeah. for me or whatever. Do you ever say no, or do you default to, hey, look, I'll, I'll chat to you again in six months or whatever? You know, I used to say no, and I wound up hurting some people's feelings, especially some people from certain incubators that, you know, they've been built up to think that they're just, you know, these titans of industry and, you know, I hurt some people's feelings. I mean, people are very sensitive these days, especially young people. They're used to people giving them participation trophies. Mm -hmm. And if you hurt somebody's feelings by saying like, listen, I just don't think this is a big enough idea or I don't think the execution here is good enough. And I used to tell people like, I give your design a six out of 10. I think you could do two revisions with a you know, a designer you find on Dribble or Behance. And I think you could make this a seven and a half. If you spend $5,000, if you spend another $20,000 after that or $10,000, you might be able to make it an eight and a half, nine. And if you did that, it would probably trigger more investment. But right now it doesn't look good enough to get really serious investors. You got to fix that. And that would be like the best advice you could give somebody. I've actually kind of dialed that back because I realized I was getting a reputation for breaking people's spirits by being too candid. So what I do now is I just tell them, you know, it doesn't fit my in investment thesis. Um, and they say, why? And I say, well, I'm looking for companies that are a little further along. And I think that you have a little bit of work to do. But in three, six months, you know, it's not yet. But if, you know, you get a little more traction, the product improves a little bit. I'd love to take a look at it and put me on your monthly mailing. So I have actually dialed back my candidness, which I'm kind of known for. Because I was kind of getting a reputation of being too brutal. <laughs> too but if people are in my incubator, which is a 12-week program where I invest in them, I only accept them if they are willing to have candid discussions about what they need to do. So I kind of tell them that on the way in. Listen, if you come here, it's going to be candid. And if there's a problem with the startup, I want you to tell me what the problem is. And I'm going to tell you if I see a problem and we'd have candid discussions. Are you up for that? Are you up for just putting a massive spotlight on your startup, having 50 investors tell you what they love, what they don't love, and being ranked at the end of the week against your peers. This is like hardcore stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But people opting into it, they, then they've opted into it so they can handle it. But the truth is the reason VCs don't do this is because, well, what if the person figures it out? Right. Now you've made them feel bad. They figured it out. Now they're not going to let you in the next round. So what people have to realize is it's sort of like Hollywood where everybody's just like, oh my God, you're so brilliant. And then they don't <laughs> cast you. They're just keeping their options open. So if you know that as a founder, what you should basically do is have a forcing function. Send VCs who you've met with or investors an email. Are you interested in investing? Yes, no, not yet. Mm -hmm. And say to them, please pick one of these three choices so that I can efficiently move on and know which category you're in. If it's a hard no, that's great. 
Uh, I'd love to know what you're investing in. If I meet anybody, I'll introduce you. Mm -hmm. If it's a maybe, I'll put you on my monthly update. And if it's a yes, I'll send you the documentation and let's talk about any concerns you have or details that you want to discuss. And just be cutthroat about that. And if I don't get an answer, you can even put in your email. If I don't hear from you by Friday, I'm going to assume it's a hard no. And if you take that approach, which is what I tell founders, like just assume if they don't get back to you, it's a hard no. And that will free you from this problem of everybody trying to keep their options open. Do you care about the terms or the valuation when, when you see something you like? Yeah, valuations are an opportunity for an investor and a founder to have a meaningful discussion about something important. It doesn't really matter at an early stage if it's three, four, five, six million, right? This, even though it's double, mm -hmm. it's early stages and you want the founder to feel good about your investment and you don't want to feel like you've been, um, let's say, taken advantage of as an investor. However, if it's a competitive market, it's a great founder and they've taken a lot of risk out. If they say, hey, listen, I've gotten a bunch of offers. I was thinking about a $6 million valuation, but I've gotten offers at 10. So I'm going to take the offers at 10. If you want to participate, I understand our initial valuation discussions were at six, but you know, we, we now have a $10 million offer. And we're pursuing that. We'd love you to be involved. Then I, as the investor, can say, wow, the marketplace thinks this is worth 10. I'm going to go for it. What's the problem is when somebody has very little traction and they pick their valuation, as some people have, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, y Combinator companies telling me that they picked their valuation based on the highest valuation from the last class. So they're like, we heard that this company got 15 million, so we're doing 15 million, or we're doing 16 million, or we think we're right behind them, so we're doing 12. In other words, it was just like a competition to see who could make the highest valuation. And then some people were going for uncapped notes. That craziness kind of worked against Y Combinator. It, I think Y Combinator took a big reputation hit based on the kind of crazy valuations. And, I, and to Y Combinator's credit, I think they talked to everybody and said, if you go out there with a crazy valuation, it's going to just, it's going to put people off to our program. It's going to put people off to you as a founder. Go out with a realistic expectation. And all these high pressure tactics I got from Y Combinator companies, which are trained to do high pressure tactics, which work with dentists and they work with <laughs> naive angels, but they drive away the high quality people who don't want to deal with that kind of manipulation in the marketplace. All of those people I turned down and said, hey, um, I'll meet with you in two weeks. I have an opening in my schedule in three weeks. And they said, oh, the deal will be closed by then. Every single time the deal was not closed. <laughs> so there was this like artificial manufacturing of like the deal's closing in 48 hours. You have to get your paperwork in. And it was all manipulation, right? And it, it, it almost never happens that way. And so I think the market has now leveled out. And even though there's a lot of investors, we're seeing valuations for early stage startups with little to modest traction be in the three to $6 million range. When somebody's in that seven, eight, nine, $10 million range, you have to ask, okay, what you have to start looking deeper at what's the traction here or what's the attraction, right? So either they have traction or an attraction. The attraction might be, it's Mark Pincus, it's Evan right. Williams, it's some great entrepreneur doing their second or third company. Okay, it yeah. makes sense. Or they, they've got a great customer or they've got some yeah. great engagement metric. So if you go for a higher valuation, you're going to lose potential investors and you're going to have to prove to them why. So I just tell people, just stay in the normal ranges so you don't trigger 
massive debate. If you start triggering that massive debate and you can back it up, fine. Go for a $10 million valuation. Go for an $8 million valuation in your seed stage. But you better have something good there because you might start losing the Cyan Bannisters or the Kevin Roses or the Chris Sockas or the Ron Conways who will look at it and say, nah, I, I don't need to hit every investment. And right. you lose the good investors and you get the, the, the bad investors. That's really the risk for founders. Yeah, I remember reading about Y Combinator. Paul Graham said that one of the jobs they have in the run up to pitch to demo day, if you like, is to like help the not so strong investments look more like the strong investments. And it kind of it got to a point where I guess like every startup has the exact same charts and the exact same advantages. Uh, but then well, as I look through your book as well, like I sort of with launch your incubator and with this book, you're giving a lot of guidance to founders, in your case, more indirectly on like how to look like a, a great or promising startup. Do you ever wonder you're like teaching people how to play you? Yeah, so I think that's a valid point. You know, there's you can you can put a lot of lipstick on the pig and dress them up, but I think you know, you can only do that to a certain extent and those hacks only work for a short period of time. So what I really try to do is get people focused, especially in my incubator, on having a metric that they can focus on that is truly meaningful for their company and try to get to the truth and reality. The great entrepreneurs, if they can tell the truth and say, hey, listen, there's a chance regulation could kill this business, but here's how we're going to handle it. We think there's 20 markets that are very progressive and they're going to let us do Airbnb, but these other 200 markets are not. So our plan is to focus on the markets where we will be allowed and then have those inspire other markets to follow us. But hey, listen, there's a lot of regulation risk. Being upfront with it and explaining it in that fashion, I think will get people who are risk takers to understand the risk reward ratio. And so I, I do think that there was a lot of, uh, you know, as Paul Graham was saying, we're trying to make them look this way and people have seen through it. So I do due diligence and due diligence always has this come out in the book. I talk about a bunch of startups that I busted in due diligence who are just flat out lying or misrepresenting the truth. So a lot of times I'll ask people, hey, what's your revenue? And say, oh, it's 10,000 a month or it's 10,000. And I'm like, oh, a month. So you have 120 MR. They're like, no, it's 10,000 to date. I'm like, okay, well, how long has the product been in market? Oh, the product's been in market for 14 months. Okay, so you actually have $1,500 a month? Well, no, we did a consulting project where we built something for somebody one-off and it was custom wear and it was, they gave us $8,000. So we actually have like $3,000 in monthly reoccurring. We have $3,000 in revenue. Okay, can you break that down for us? Oh, yeah, well, we had somebody buy 10 seats for $300 a year. Okay, can, which customers that? Can we talk to them? Oh, well, they just canceled. <laughs> yeah. These are the conversations I wind up having with yeah. people. You start pulling the string and it's very simple to get the actual data. I just say, give me a weekly chart of revenue. Give me a weekly chart of page views. Give me a weekly chart of unique visitors. And the great startups will give it to you and it's not going to be up and to the right perfectly. It's right. going to be spiky. It's going to be weird. There's going to be events. And that's when you can start to see like, okay, here's the pulse of the business. Mm -hmm. But at Y Combinator, what a lot of people have done is they're like, okay, we're going to graduate in eight weeks. Let's spend this amount of money on Facebook ads for eight weeks and it will make our page views. It will make our engagement look like this. And it's so easy to spot. If anybody's got that up into the right chart, all you have to do is ask them for the backup data and say, hey, did you pay for any of this? How much of this is paid traffic? Okay, give me the 10 top customers. I want to talk to them on the phone. And literally in due diligence, I've asked people to give us the customer you know, give us the contract that they told us they had and didn't have contracts. Right. Like literally people said they had contracts with Google and Facebook and other companies 
and they didn't actually have contracts. They said they – and when I caught them in it, they said, oh, it's a verbal commitment. I said, OK, who did you talk to about the verbal commitment? They're like, oh, we met somebody at a party. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like literally people will lie and it all comes out in due diligence. So you can play these games with your charts, but I think the, the gig is up now. A lot of angel investors are becoming professional. They've gotten burned and they're asking people very specifically, can you give me the data? And when people ask to get the data, the raw data – it, you know, you, you can't manipulate it. It's very hard. Yeah, there's far less hiding. I think I've I've also heard I've had friends who have been asked like, show us some proof that you actually have this revenue. Like, can we see your bank balance? And and like, sure enough, like when you have it, you're like, it's like sure thing. Screenshot done. Next next problem. But anyone who gives you kind of like, a, uh, mm, mm, let me check. Mm, we'll see. Uh, it's kind of it's an immediate alarm bell, right? Yeah, I mean, we when people start having to explain. You know yeah. <laughs> what they meant by you know we had this much revenue or this many users. When they start having to explain it, or you know, I had somebody who just said we don't want to uh, have you talk to the customer, and I was like, okay, you don't want us to talk to a customer. Like customers love to talk to investors. If you have a customer who's loving your product and you tell them you're going for you have a high profile investor who's going to invest. They're like – and you ask them to talk to them on the phone. They're like, absolutely. I want to see you succeed. I want to see you have more resources to make this product better. Right. It's a, it's the ultimate tell if somebody doesn't want you to talk to their customers. Changing gears for a sec. In the book, you said that to be a great angel investor, you probably need to be in Silicon Valley. Do you think the same is true? So, I mean, I think the reasons for that are obvious. We talked about deal flow earlier. It, it makes a lot of sense. But do you think it's the same is true for building great companies? Like when you look at a company as an angel investor – are you only attracted to Valley companies or do you ask companies who invest in to move? How do you think about all that? So innovation can happen anywhere, clearly. Um, if you look at Stockholm, Sweden, there's been nine unicorns in the last, whatever, 10 years there. Spotify, mm -hmm. SoundCloud, uh, Candy Crush, uh, King, the makers of Candy Crush. Yeah. Tons of interesting companies have come out of Stockholm. And we had uh, Snapchat worth at 15 or 20 billion. We'll see if it's actually worth that in yeah. the coming years. But even if it's just worth five or 10 billion, that's a very significant exit for an angel mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. But if you look historically at the largest companies, they've been based in the Valley. So the $100 million companies, which there's a small handful of Amazon, Microsoft in Seattle, and then all the rest, Cisco, Apple, Facebook, Google, eventually Airbnb and Uber perhaps – Netflix, perhaps, all of these companies, uh, Tesla, are based in Silicon Valley. So the outsized returns will inevitably come from Silicon Valley just on a statistical basis. But that's that has been changing over the years. What I would say is either you have to be here or you have to have access to the deal flow here by coming here on a regular basis. Chris Saka did a great job of living in Tahoe, and he would come – he would drive into town and come into town for 48 hours every other week, meet with a bunch of interesting companies, and then go back and do his work and you know live his life in Tahoe. That's completely possible. I did all of my investments prior to three years ago by getting on a plane from Los Angeles and coming up here. So I invested in all of those companies while living in Los Angeles, but I did come here every week for two days a week. I would literally get on my Southwest flight at six or seven in the morning. I would come here, stay over, and come back the next night. But then finally, I was like, gosh, I, you know, I'm trying to invest in 30, 40 companies. I'm going to have to be up here for three or four days a week. Screw it. I'll just move here for the next five years and see how it goes. And so I think the high art is going to be for founders having their headquarters here, but having a location in Ireland or Austin or South America in Uruguay or Paraguay where there's great developers or Canada in Waterloo, Toronto, Vancouver, Seattle, wherever it is, Portland, 
having an office where the cost of living is a third or half of what it is here, where people turn over you know, every three or four years as opposed to every 12 to 18 months, right? The turnover in Silicon Valley is just devastating. Right. The cost of living is devastating. So I think for founders, very smart to do what WordPress did, to do what you're doing, to do what countless other companies are doing, which is, hey, you could have a development shop, you could have sales and marketing, you'd have customer support in Arizona, in Colorado, all of these different, you know, awesome states here in the union or Canada and Europe. It's it's a it's a great way to arbitrage the costs. That makes sense, and it's certainly obviously a strategy we're somewhat fond of uh, in Intercom. I think we should probably wrap up. Yep. Congrats again on the book launch. Uh, the book Angel is out July eighteen. Is that right? Yeah, July eighteenth. Angelthebook.com. Angelthebook.com. And where else could our listeners go to find out more about the book and more about what you're up to generally? Yeah. So um, on Twitter, I'm Jason J A S O N. And you can follow me there. I, I tweet pretty frequently. Uh, and the book is angelthebook.com. If you sign up for the email list at angelthebook.com, you'll get invited to some hamburger meetups I'm doing around the country where I'm just going to buy everybody who buys the book a burger and sit and talk with them about startups and technology and business. So uh, sign up for the email list and angelthebook.com or you can search on Barnes & Noble, Audible, Amazon, and it'll be in your local bookstore. It's by HarperCollins and they're like the number one publisher. So you're not going to have a hard time finding the book. It's everywhere. That's awesome. And we'll be giving away a few copies to our listeners as well. So once again, thank you so much for your time today, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Des. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.